We watched a movie in our house recently, and in one scene, a young and deeply frustrated mom considers this proposition that's pushing into her head, my life has to change in order for me to be happy. Well, does it? That all depends on whether this life, this life of flowers and spring sunshine and rain and gourmet coffee and terrorism and hurting relationships and medical wizardry and online banking and the delight of children, whether, in fact, it is the only life that there is. The Bible says it's not the only life there is. The leading shapers of the modern secular world think it is. The Bible teaches that in the life still to come, that is, in the life that is beyond this life, it is possible actually to be resurrected ourselves and become immortal, just as Jesus was. The shapers of the modern secular world, however, think that that's naive, pre-scientific fantasy, wishful thinking. So we stand our ground, we say this morning without embarrassment that the Christian faith insists on this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our history is the bedrock foundation of true happiness in this life. Just because his resurrection is evidence for the world that there is another life to come. And such happiness is possible now, even when this life seems unbearably hard. That is, even when it feels like your life has to change if you are to find any happiness at all. Our text for this morning is in your order of service. It should be where you are on page 10. The Bible's word for deep happiness is joy. Joy is down in the core of the Easter story. Christianity in the New Testament is characterized by joy. It teaches that if you come to Jesus Christ, bow to him, and embrace him, as your God and your Lord, then something happens. The mysterious Spirit of God begins to take up residence in you, in your being, with a purpose, and that is to change you, that you might become more and more in your character, like the man Jesus. And what is the evidence that the Spirit of God is really at work in you, changing you, if you have put your trust in Him, that He is at work healing your heart, teaching truth to your mind, and pushing it out into transformed character? What is the fruit of the Spirit's presence in you? That which God Himself from heaven brings into your being and then pushes out into the world in your little life. The Apostle Paul 
lists the character fruits of the Holy Spirit in you. If you are a true Christian, he lists them in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's first and foremost. Second is joy. And the Apostle Peter, speaking to first century Christians, many of whom had a very hard life, wrote, In this you express your joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then Peter kind of marvels and he says, Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus Christ, yet you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are joyful with a joy that is inexpressible. But where did that joy come from? Where did it start? Well, it started on that first Easter day in the morning. Mary Magdalene, a woman who had known deep pain in her life, she went with a few others to the tomb of Jesus, but the tomb was empty. And an angel who was shining with brilliant clothing was there and told Mary and the others that Jesus wasn't there and that he was no longer dead, but in fact had been resurrected. When the angel was finished, Matthew tells us in his account of it all, he wrote this, So the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear. You would expect that. She'd seen an angelic being and great joy. This then to what we find in our text here, recounted by Luke. This happened Easter evening. The disciples were gathered in a room, the two that we read about at the beginning of our worship, the two disciples who had encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, had recognized him in the moment that he said grace before they ate. They raced back to Jerusalem. They're in the room too, and they're telling their story. As Luke reports it, as they were talking about these things, verse 36 of Luke 24, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. No mention of Jesus knocking on the door. Just simply that. And the implication seems to be all of a sudden, there he was. He's just standing in their midst. John makes it a point to say that the doors were locked. Luke doesn't, but says something very close to it. All of a sudden, he was standing in their midst, which would explain why Luke says next, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Luke goes on, verse 38, And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me, and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The wounds, we know from the Gospel of John, still visible, scars already, we may presume. And then verse 41, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Got anything here to eat? 
In other words, let me prove to you that it's me and that, that I have teeth. This is my body, crucified. Yes, powerfully transformed indeed it is. But it is a real physical body capable of eating. What a line. They still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Now that doesn't seem to me to be the disbelief of hard-heartedness. That seems much more like the disbelief of a publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes winner. What? You're telling me that I have won $7,000 a week for the rest of my life? That's the going prize. Shut up. (laughs) I can't believe it. In other words, what I'm now being told, what I'm now seeing in the check, what I'm seeing in the body before me, as it unfolds, it feels too good to be true too promising, too wonderful to be real. Friends, Easter morning is day one of the new creation, and joy is the mark of the new creation in Jesus Christ. You see, a widening cascade of Christian joy has gone down through the ages It's flooded the whole world. Sometimes it's out in the open and overflowing. Sometimes it's hidden, particularly in places of and times of persecution. It flows quietly, hiddenly, even in sorrow, even in betrayal, even in death, in the deep recesses of believing hearts. It's possible, you know, to straddle a river. Even the Mississippi. One foot on one side, and if your legs are long enough, you can plant your foot on the other side of the river. You can really do that if you've got long legs and if you go to the source of the Mississippi in northern Minnesota. That's where that mighty river begins as a trickle coming up out of the ground. I stood astride the Mississippi River at its source. The joy of the new creation, of death-bound humanity, Resurrected, that joy all started here on that first Easter Sunday. It began as a tiny trickle with the joy of those few women in the morning and then a few men in the evening. And friends, as we stand over this text and reflect on it, we are straddling the source of the great wide river of Christian joy that has filled the world. However, that joy is only as good as the truth of the claim. 
that Jesus really did rise from the grave, not simply as a resuscitated man, but now as a human being living in the power of an indestructible life. And that claim brings us then to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. Just a couple of verses we want to look at here, verses 13 and 14 and then 32. Paul is, is arguing because there are people there in Corinth professing Christians who say, you know, there really is no such thing as the resurrection of the body. Paul says there is. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That last little epigram is actually from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, where Isaiah the prophet is chiding the people of God. because they should have been repenting. They should have been thinking of their life in relationship to the God who sees. But they weren't. They were just seizing life for all they could get out of it. One commentator paraphrases Paul's argument here in these verses I just read this way. What sense does it make to live like this? Paul lived sacrificially. He knocked himself out for others. He took great risks for God. But what sense is there in it if, in reality, death is the end? And there is no coming resurrection for us if Christ's body is in the ground somewhere. Paul is saying, if death is the end, And we Christians are living just at the merely human level, like everybody else, without a concrete hope for the future. What in the world is the reason to live like that? If this life is all there is, and there is no coming resurrection to look forward to, Paul says, then I've played the fool with my life. All my work teaching people about Jesus Christ as the center of everything is for nothing, just empty. So Paul reasons. A few verses later, he'll say this, If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, if this life is all there is, then Ernest Hemingway was right. Together with so many like him who have felt so keenly the sadness of the world. Ernest Hemingway writes about the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus was for Ernest Hemingway the only way that Jesus Christ could relate to broken humanity. 
About a month ago, I came across an article about Hemingway. The writer said this, Most of Hemingway's characters believe this present life is their only life, that nothing awaits them at death. The machismo for which these characters are famous is a stance that simultaneously accepts and defies the collapse of life into nothing. Ironically, Hemingway uses the crucified Christ as a recurring metaphor for a strong man facing the human situation. Not Christ resurrected, the writer says, but Jesus crucified, a man enduring the collapse of his dreams before the violence of the world, facing with clear-eyed consciousness the revelation that he is forsaken. And then the writer goes on to talk about a short drama that Hemingway wrote called Today is Friday, and three Roman soldiers are discussing Jesus' crucifixion. One says repeatedly of him, he was pretty good in there today. This soldier who was a veteran of many crucifixions is impressed by Jesus, his fortitude. For Hemingway, life is a long crucifixion that the strong endure without recanting all that they have lived for. That is an incredibly sad place to stand, where our hearts ache for eternity, where we have laid hold of the rich and wonderful goodness of the world, but then believe that there is nothing beyond that. How sad that Hemingway, who lived by this creed, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, the end. And of course, he hastened that end by taking his own life. We don't have it printed for you, but between verses 13 to 14 there in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul stands against Hemingway's despair by making this great affirmation, knowing the testimony of these eyewitnesses, these women, these men who saw Jesus alive after his death, who put their fingers in the wounds, the crucifixion wounds that were there. And so Paul gives this great affirmation, this exclamation, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. That refers to an old covenant religious ceremony. It's the first installment would fit our contemporary context. He is the first installment of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, not all indiscriminately, Paul goes on to say, but each in his own order, Christ the first installment, then at his coming 
those who belong to him. Those who have put their trust in him, Paul teaches elsewhere. And then Paul says, here's where it's all going. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Meanwhile, as C.S. Lewis once said, tomorrow is a Monday morning, and this life in the here and now goes on. I know where at least some of you are this morning, in the here and now. I know something of what's hard and painful for you, something of what is rich and good in the things of this life that you are enjoying. But whoever you are, and wherever you are, in your here and now, Jesus Christ offers, he offers to you this true and deep happiness. He offers you joy of the kind that even the best things in this life cannot give you. In the end, The good things, and Ernest Hemingway, he knew the good things. He tasted of the good things. He lived in Key West. Kath and I saw his house not long ago. Remarkably good things in that little place. But they can only point all these good things we know and taste and enjoy. They point beyond themselves to the great resurrected man who can bring you one day into his resurrection, into the power of an indestructible life. Your life does not have to change for you to be happy. And your horizon may have to change. That in which you put your ultimate trust may have to change. And if it does, and you find Jesus Christ, then he is the one who bids you look up from the present sorrow and see what's coming. To those of you who already believe Christ, maybe you're envious of Christians who seem to live with so much more joy than you do. Remember this, that none of us have yet what was promised. C.S. Lewis said it well when he said, all joy reminds. It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. And your Lord promises you, if you trust him, that your coming glory is about to be. And that teaches you to choose joy and say, even with great defiance against your sorrows, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we rise. Amen.